Have you ever sat with someone, and by sat I don't mean literally sit with someone, but have you ever been with someone when they are in the midst of incredible pain? It will be physical pain, emotional, spiritual, some kind of pain. Have you ever sat with someone in that situation, whether it was beside the bed of a loved one in the hospital going through some horrific illness, or watching someone receive treatment for an illness and the the after effects of that, and you sat with them through that process. Or maybe it was with a a child uh, in the midst of a very uh, emotional experience at school or learning the truths of the world in an unfortunate way. Chances are, if you've been on this earth long enough, you've had the opportunity to, with someone you love, sit through a moment of pain with them. It's hard to be comfortable in that situation, right? It's hard to be comfortable when someone we love is uncomfortable. And in reality, if we could pull that off, being comfortable when people that we love around us are uncomfortable, we might call that person a sociopath, right? Someone who has no emotion, someone who lacks the social skills to relate to people that they love to such a degree that they don't care what anybody else feels or thinks. Most of us have the Bible tells us to do. We have bore one another's burdens. We bear one another's pains. And so we understand that it is uncomfortable to be around somebody else, especially someone that we love, that is also uncomfortable. Is it possible, though, to be so comfortable, to be so at ease in our lives and with the luxury that God has blessed us with that we can miss the pain of others? Or maybe we could see the pain of others, yet remain comfortable in our own lives. The people whom Amos addresses in our text this morning answer that question with a yes. That is possible. The leaders of Israel, along with their counterparts in Judah, had become so comfortable with their life of ease that they failed to see the suffering around them and the downfall on their horizon. God must have a phrase that he really wants you to hear this morning because he put it in Bill's mouth as well. Um, The task of the prophet, or what I was often told in seminary, one of the tasks of the preacher is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Uh, And that's what the task of Amos is in his setting, is to encourage the comfortable to go and comfort the afflicted, to encourage them to go care for the least of these. This is one thing, as we've seen through our series through Amos, this is one thing that he has spoken and refrained uh, to go and, and, and do justice, to do righteousness, to, to go and, and be with those people who aren't able to do for themselves. But he does so in such a way that he afflicts the comfortable, Amos does. He says things boldly, as we have discussed over the last several weeks Picking on Israel, it might seem to an untrained eye, but certainly to our eyes as Christians, as we read along, we see the word of God being spoken boldly in a powerful way through a man who is courageous and willing enough to speak it. And the message that I believe we should take away from this passage that we're going to read this morning is that we cannot be at ease in the midst of dis-ease. Not, don't mean disease like sickness. We cannot be at ease in the midst of dis-ease, in a world that is restless, in a world that is chaotic. It does not make sense for us as followers of Jesus to find ourselves consistently comfortable with the world around us. So let's go ahead and dive into Scripture. Amos chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. 
Uh, Before we do that, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for your spirit. And God, I pray that through your spirit, Lord, you would speak to each of us today. God, that you would give us a word that would challenge us, that would encourage us. God, that would be implanted in our lives through a lack of distraction in our minds and in our hearts, implanted in such a way that you might change us and you might change the way that we interact with others in our, in our world. God, allow us to be transformed through the hearing of your word. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, Amos chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, the prophet Amos begins a new word from God when he says, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Pass over to Kalna, and see, and from there go to Hamath the Great, then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? O you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls, And anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile, and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. Amos prophesies in this book mainly to the northern kingdom of Israel, as seen by Samaria in this passage. But he's not above picking on his home country as well, Judah, occasionally, when he mentions Zion, uh, another word for Jerusalem. And so in this, he is addressing both countries, both nations, but mostly continuing along with the people of Israel in the north. He says to not be at ease in Zion or to rest secure on the mountain of Samaria, that those who were in positions of power and in control and with influence and with resources were living behind God's protection. We're living in this, these great cities, these great fortresses, but doing so without worrying about those who are not doing so well. Doing so without worrying about the failure of their own society, the way that things were getting worse and worse and further away, than what, further away from what God had for them. And even despite all of the chaos around them, they were placing faith in themselves to the point that Amos begins to question them, begins to call them out. You think you're the first of the nations, he basically says. Compare yourselves to your neighbors. Compare yourselves to Kalna and Hamath the Great. Compare yourselves to Gath and Philistia. Compare yourselves to those cities. Now, what the comparison is exactly, we're not sure. Many scholars have different answers. They think that maybe each of these towns, even though they were considered great, also went through great times of destruction and judgment from outside forces. And so maybe Amos is trying to bring to their attention that this same thing is going to happen to them, or these great cities were once so great and they eventually came down. Or maybe it's just as simple as saying, hey, look around at the competition and realize that they got things that you don't. Realize that there are things going on in those parts of the world very close to you, even your neighbors, that you might not even be greater than those in your own neighborhood. Yet you think you are number one. We have a tendency, 
as humans to consider ourselves as the main character in every story, don't we? In every story ever being told in our world today, we are the protagonists. And those who disagree with us are the antagonists, right? They are the people who are against the truth and the good. We are the good guys. Everybody else is the bad guys. I don't just mean that on the big stage. I mean that even in our own personal lives. When we tell ourselves stories, when we live through the narrative of our day-to-day life, we are the central character in our own story. And we assume that we're the central character in everybody else's story. We see that play out in the world with these mindless debates that I constantly see on ESPN and other news, other sports news stations where they talk about, many of you may not care, so just bear with me for a second, but the NBA Finals just finished. LeBron James got beat again, uh, but he is often considered, he is rightly considered the best basketball player of our generation, uh, the best player on the earth at this point. But the debate becomes, and then they love to debate on the sports talk shows today where they, they don't debate, they yell at each other mindlessly to the point that you just want to, you want to mute it, you want to turn it off, you want to say, you know, write it down in an article and let me read it. I just can't take the tone of it all. But one thing they argue about is that, well, LeBron James is not only the greatest player in this generation, he's the greatest of all time, people might want to say. And of course, as a kid in the 90s, a kid who grew up in the 90s, a kid who grew up watching the actual greatest player of all time, Michael Jordan, I beg to differ with that position. But I begin to wonder, why is that the case? And why aren't people like Wilt Chamberlain or Bill Russell in that conversation? Maybe I wasn't around to witness those guys, so I don't think about them as the greatest player of all time. Maybe it has something to do with when I was coming of age, when I was understanding for the first time the thrill of sports, uh, the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat, when I was getting my mind around that and falling in love with the game, falling in love with competition as a child, Michael Jordan was the central sports figure of our culture. And so it would make sense for me to consider that he's better than anybody else. And it would make sense for the new generation to think that their guy is better than anybody else. But here is the facts. Michael Jordan right now at this day is too old to get on the court and go one-on-one with LeBron James. Don't tell him I said that. He might want to hit me. He's a very competitive dude. But you know what I'm saying. We're not going to actually witness these two individuals play against each other in their primes. It is purely an academic debate, and it's one that's a complete waste of time if we're being completely honest with ourselves. There is no way to sufficiently argue one way or the other. It's the same reason that I could tell you, look you in your eyes and tell you that 90s rock is better than 80s rock because I grew up in the 90s. It is what I love. It is what I, the music that was the background of my childhood. So, of course, I'm going to think that is primary above every other kind of music, whether it's 70s or 60s or whatever it is that you are into. I would argue that my music is the best, just like most people on this planet would. That idea that we are the central figures of our own stories. That no one is as great as what we are today. That we can look around the world and all the stuff that we have to be proud of, all the accomplishments of our modern technological age, and we can come to the conclusion that we as a human race are the most proficient we've ever been, the most intelligent we've ever been. We are the the most ready to reach out and dominate the globe as we have ever been. And the only reason why we say that is because we don't know what happened before us. 
is because we weren't there to witness the Industrial Revolution. We weren't there to witness the Renaissance when amazing things were happening, amazing people were walking and shaping the earth. We just assume that our narrative is the main narrative of the story, when in reality... The 200 plus years that our country has existed can make a very small portion of the overall span of human history and even modern history. We have a tendency to consider ourselves as most important. Israel had that tendency, and they misplaced faith in themselves to the point that they doubted anything bad could happen to them. In verse 3, Amos, God through Amos says to the people of Israel and also Judah, O you who put far away the day of disaster. In other words, they thought that disaster would never come. They had been warned by Amos and the other prophets that were walking the earth at the same time that he was. They had been told that something was going to come, the people of Israel had. Yet because of these leaders' misplaced faith in themselves, they didn't believe that bad news. They didn't heed any warnings, as we talked about last week. Instead, they said, nah, that will never happen. We're doing fine, Amos. You are speaking doom and gloom. Just take a deep breath and realize that it's not nearly as bad as you think. Just relax. Lay down on this bed of ivory. Sprawl out on our comfortable couches and realize that we should be at ease in Samaria at ease in Zion and not so worried about the cataclysm that you say is coming. You know, the Titanic was said to be unsinkable. Philip Franklin, the vice president of White Star Line, the company that produced the Titanic, said in 1912, actually, while they begin to hear the first uh, messages of, of, of potential bad news from the Titanic stateside. When they begin to hear these words, the people who were in charge of, 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 of the Titanic who built her, one of them, the vice president of that White Star Line, said this There is no danger that the Titanic will sink. The boat is unsinkable, and nothing but inconvenience will be suffered by the passengers. Hearing that there was a problem, Even knowing that there was a report that something had gone wrong, this gentleman's response was, ah, it'll just be a minor inconvenience. The Titanic is unsinkable. And their clearly misplaced faith is part of what allowed the disaster in the first place. Many of you have studied that history or you've heard some of the the facts of what happened. You know that they were going through an ice field. They were traveling at a very high rate of speed, very abnormal for a ship in that day at night in an ice field to be traveling as fast as they were. They had other ships, the, the California a Californian actually tried to telegraph to them or to through wireless communication, Morse code to them that there was dangerous ice fields around. And I just read this the other day uh, that they had just got far enough from, um, um, from the east to the west. They had just got close enough to uh, the western hemisphere, to the United States, to Canada. It was actually, they were just now close enough to communicate with a port in Newfoundland. And so the people in the Titanic that were actually wiring, it was their job to do the wireless communication, they were sending messages from passengers. And they have some of those messages written down, and they're, they're, they're mundane. I mean, they're people communicating with people that are waiting on them to arrive. They're sending messages. And the, US, the, the 
RMS Californian was trying to break through all of this clutter to get to the Titanic to tell them that there was a dangerous ice field around. And there was actually recorded transmissions between the Californian and the Titanic where the Titanic signals to him, be quiet, you fool. I'm trying to communicate with these people in Newfoundland. They so were confident in their own ability that they failed to see the danger right in front of them. To trust only in oneself is to set oneself up for disappointment. That was true of Israel. And in the midst of their, their misplaced faith in themselves, they lived at ease. Living in luxurious comfort, lying on beds of ivory, as Amos puts it. These would be wooden beds with ivory inlaid in the, uh, in, in the wood for, with special artistic designs. They were stretching out, they were lounging, taking it easy on their couches, they were eating fine food, eating fine foods. Lamb and calf meat is exceptionally tender. Many of you have ever eaten that, you might know that to be the case. But not only were they exceptionally tender to eat meat in that day, any kind of meat, let alone a delicacy meat like this, was rare. It was something mainly um, meant for special occasions. Most Israelites would only eat meat a few times during the year, during the feasts themselves. But these who were in charge were dining from it whenever they could, whenever they wanted to, because they had the means to do so. They enjoyed entertainment, singing idle songs, no meaning to them, just doing it for the fun of it. Fancying themselves to be like David who would create instruments and create music. And they did so in such a way that it was completely over the top. They didn't just drink wine by the glass. No, Amos says they were drinking it by the bowl. This would be straight out of the container that that the wine was first placed in where it was allowed to ferment. They were just grabbing it off the shelf or out of the closet or wherever they had it and drinking it straight out of the bottle, we might say, in our day. And they anointed themselves with the finest of oil. It wasn't abnormal for people to anoint themselves with oil, especially rich people in that day. But the finest of oils, Amos is showing the -the over-the-top nature of it. The most expensive they could find. This is what they anointed themselves with. And the result was that Israel will be the first into exile. We cannot be at ease in the midst of dis-ease. Israel found that out. They found out that dis-ease was coming for them. Amos says, you want to be first? You want to experience being in line, being at the head of the line, being the ones who are the most powerful, being the ones to whom the blessing first comes? Okay, you're going to be first, but you're going to be first in line for judgment. You're going to be first in line for exile. Your brothers in Judah will follow you, but you are going to be the first to leave. And the comfort of the leaders was replaced was suffering. It says in verse 7, the last part, and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. Dis-ease came for them. An uncomfortable life came for them, even though they tried to live as if everything was fine. Are we at ease in Zion? If Amos were to speak to us today, what might he say? What might he pick on in our own luxurious lifestyles in the American church? 
We also have the tendency to think we're number one in anything and everything. We also have the tendency to ignore the, the cases in which we're not number one. You consider education system compared to the rest of the world. Consider the booming of Christianity going on in places like South America and Africa and even in China. And consider that with our own decline in this country. Perhaps we're not number one in every way that we think we are. And Amos might bring that to the forefront. He might remind us that our pride has blinded us to the problems all around. And he might chide us for our ease in Zion. Instead of laying on beds of ivory, it might be the screens that we stare at for hours every day. Instead of thinking about drinking from the bowls of wine, it might be the food that we throw away, which is sometimes more in one day than other people in the world see in an entire week or month. He might talk about how the fact in our world today in 2018, especially for my generation and younger, we are living in a world where we don't have to be bored anymore. We don't have to be bored anymore. I had this conversation with my five-year-old recently. He said, I'm bored, and I responded to him, Corbin, sometimes it's good to be bored. Sometimes it's okay to let your mind wander and actually imagine things instead of having something in front of your face at all times. In our day and with our technological uh, amazing devices around us, we don't have to be bored anymore. Do you realize if we have any sort of money in our world today, we can remove boredom from our lifestyle? Because if we're bored, what do we do? What does my generation do? I'm going to download an app. I'm going to download a game. I'm going to look at social media. I'm going to do something to distract my mind from the reality around me, and my brain is going to atrophy in the process. Can I get an amen from somebody in the house this morning? We have removed that from our vernacular, being bored. We surround ourselves only with voices that pat us on the back and agree with our same worldview. We relax just like they lounged on the couches. We relax as our latest gadget from Amazon arrives at our doorstep that we put on our third credit card. And we make plans assuming that all of this luxury will always be available. And when it's not, even for a moment, we lose it, don't we? Cell phone doesn't work. We lose it. I once listened to a comedian that was talking about how this technology is wasted on our generation. By our generation, I mean everybody on the planet today, not just one particular age group. Because we have these devices in our pockets that bounce off of satellites in space, Like, that's how the communication system works in a lot of ways, right? If you're going to talk to somebody, especially on the other side of the planet, or you're going to download something from the Internet that's on a server in China, you're going to be able to do that. You're going to have to rely on these satellites. And he was talking about how we get so frustrated, right, when the Internet breaks for like three seconds. And he says, would you just give it a break? It's literally going to space. Like, can you get your mind around that for a second? That signal is going to space and then coming back. And because it took 30 seconds longer than you thought that it would, you lose your mind, right? This is the society that we live in today, where everything must be given so quickly. And we assume that it's always going to be that way. And when it's not, we get very, very uncomfortable because we are supposed to be at ease in Zion. After Amos pointed out all of these comforts, luxuries, points of ease in our lives. He might say something like, 
but are you not aware of your own destruction? You have all of these creaturely comforts and you have completely missed. You have completely missed the fact that there is decay all around you. Within your culture, within your churches, within your homes, you've missed it all. You see, God has not called us to be comfortable in this age. Rest is coming, for sure, in the actual Zion, when it arrives. But right now, it's only supposed to exist, if you've read your Bible, one-seventh of the time. We are supposed to work six out of seven days and then rest on the seventh. Right now, we can get into the debate on exactly when the Sabbath is supposed to fall and all that. I'll just turn you to Jesus' words when he says, Sabbath was made for the man, not man for the Sabbath. We shouldn't get overly legalistic for it. But there is a pattern built within God's framework to give us rest. And that pattern gives us rest one-seventh of the time. The rest of the time, we're supposed to be working. Rest is coming now. Rest is coming eventually. But now it only exists on the Sabbath. There is joy to be had every day. There is peace to be had every day. But are we to be a people who lounge in comfort seven out of seven days of the week? The obvious answer from Scripture, if you have read the command to go and make disciples, to be God's witnesses to the uttermost parts of the earth, if you have read those passages, you know that we are not called to be at comfort, but we are called to be at work. We are called to be on mission for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because there are both people bound for hell for eternity and people experiencing hellish situations right now on this planet all around us. We cannot be at ease in the midst of dis-ease. is unchristian, ungodly to be comfortable when everything around us is uncomfortable. To be sitting back lounging and relaxing when there is chaos surrounding us. I've already told you, I've already alluded to the Titanic in this sermon. Let me go back to that as an illustration. There were 20 lifeboats on board the Titanic. Many of you know from history that that was much less than what was required to actually get all of the people on board, off board safely. Of those 20, only 18 of them launched successfully. One of them just floated away. Another one was overturned and people climbed on the bottom of it in order to survive. Some of them survived, some of them didn't. But of the 18, most were not filled to capacity. One lifeboat only had 12 passengers in it, five first-class passengers and seven crew members, despite that lifeboat having a capacity of at least 40 people. Only one boat out of the 18 that were able to escape returned to rescue people out of the water. They plucked nine from the icy water, only six of which survived in the long run. In total, this is the number that I really want you to hear. In total, 472 available lifeboat spots went unused. It was a disaster that changed the way the shipping world operated. People began to put in legislation, both in America and all around the world, very quickly that there should be enough lifeboats to care for everybody on board. If you've ever been on a cruise ship and you do the muster thing before you depart, you know that to be the case now, right? There's enough lifeboats there to save everybody on board if that happened to be necessary. That wasn't the case on the Titanic. And about 1,500, 1,500 plus people died, but 472 of them could have been saved if they had just lived up to their potential, their capacity. You see, they had the potential to save lives, but not the will to save lives. There are stories told, especially of that one lifeboat that had 12, even though it could fill 40. 
There's stories told of some of the first-class passengers, which, by the way, to access the lifeboats, you had to get to the first-class deck. And many of those on second- and third-class were unable to ascend to that level, and that's why many of them perished. That's why those of whom survived survived by jumping into the water and then swimming to a lifeboat or finding some other way to survive. But many of those, especially this boat that only had 12 people, there are stories. Who knows whether they're true or not, but the stories are told of People being asked, should we go back? And them saying generally, no, we shouldn't go back because, well, these hundreds of people that are in the water might, might bring the boat down, might tip us over, and we might die alongside them. Should we go back? And, and there's even one story told specifically of this boat where the crew members, the seven crew members that were alongside the five first-class passengers left the boat with five pounds from one of these first-class first class passengers, five pounds, British money. They were given that, he said, to um, basically make up for what they had lost in the ship. But some accused him of bribing the crew members to keep going forward and to not go back and rescue anyone else. In a lot of ways, the American church today, if we are being honest, is like those who managed to find a lifeboat on the Titanic and then listened the cries of those dying in water well below freezing with salt water so it could get into the upper 20s without becoming ice. Listening to the wells, not the wells that's swimming by, but the, the wells, the screams of the people saying it was the worst sound they had ever heard in their life. Many of us, if we are being honest with ourselves, At many times in the American church, we are at ease in Zion, at ease in the lifeboat, thankful for our own safety and trying to drown out the chaos and the pain of those around us. We have the potential to save lives, but do we have the will? Many of those who fled from the Titanic did not. The same is true of Amos' audience. They had the potential. They had the word of God. They had, if they were obedient, the protection of God. Yet, even though they had that potential, they did not have the will. You see, there is work to be done on this side of heaven. If you are at ease in Zion, relaxing in the comfort of God's grace, you are lying to yourself because we have not yet made it to Zion. We have not yet made it to that ultimate resting place. Our work is not yet done. For many, especially those of us who grew up in the Bible Belt, and I certainly understand this because I myself allow myself to get to this point every now and then, we think that, well, because we have been saved, because we have been baptized, because we attend church, because we tithe, that we have done our work and we can sit back and relax and wait for God to come get us and take us home. This is a complete misunderstanding of the true nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel does not just save us, it empowers us to be the medium through which God saves the rest of the world. And the rest of the world is living in discomfort. They are living lives uncomfortable from their own sin, from their own lack, from their own lack of knowledge of the truth. They are living in this discomfort and they are living in this chaos and we are not relaxing in Zion. In reality, we are at ease in Babylon. We are at ease in the worldly systems today. 
We are at ease of the luxury and the, and, and the comfort, not that God gives, but that the world gives. And our own devices, and our own wealth, and our own whatever the world might have given us that allows us to relax and be comfortable. We are in Babylon today, which is the enemy of the kingdom of God. Look at Revelation and how Babylon is used to depict the whole system of the world that is opposed to Zion, the people of God, the kingdom of God. Everything that is opposed to that is where we find our worldly comforts today. So we are not at ease in Zion, and neither were the people to whom Amos spoke. They were at ease in the world. They were at ease with materialism. All the while, things were going wrong around them. Their country was sliding down the path. They were heading towards judgment, and none of them cared because they were comfortable. None of them cared enough to do anything about it anyway. They might have talked about it. They might have wrung their hands about it. They might have talked about how this person or that person, this side or that side, needed to fix things, but none of them cared enough to do anything about it. Zion is not yet. Heaven has not yet been made complete reality. We are living between the ages where we are king of the, we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, but we are still here on the kingdom of this earth. And until the kingdom of heaven, God comes in his full glory to make us full citizens, fully realized and fully with him. Either our life ends or Jesus returns. Until that day comes, we have work to do. Amen? We have a job to which we are called, a mission to which we are purposed. To go and make disciples, to care for the least of these, to love God and to love people. Be willing to be uncomfortable for the sake of the uncomfortable. Be willing to put yourselves in the path of pain for those who are in pain. I started this morning asking you if you've ever sat with someone that you loved while they were going through pain, emotional, physical, or otherwise. If we could bottle that love and share it with the lost of the world... Perhaps then a difference would be made in the way that we care for those that we love the most. Look, again, I'm not telling you that you shouldn't be able to find rest. There is such thing as a Sabbath. I'm not telling you that you shouldn't be able to find peace in a chaotic world, that God shouldn't give you an overwhelming sense of, yes, it's going to be okay. Yes, I'm going to write things. All of those things are true, but comfort is something totally different. Comfort is feet kicked up on the boss's desk while the department is burning down. That is comfort. And that is not what we are called to. What we are called to is the work of the kingdom of God. To go and make disciples. To serve in vacation Bible school. To go feed the homeless. To go door to door like many of you did yesterday in the heat. It was hot at 9.30 yesterday morning to go and to do those things in the name of the God that you love and the people that you know he came to save. To be those who care for the orphans and the widows and their distress through foster care or through giving of your money to some organization to be uncomfortable for the sake of the uncomfortable. There is a day coming when you will rest for eternity. When comfort will be all that you know. When you will sit at the foot of Jesus and sing praises forever and ever. That day has not yet come. And until then, may we be willing, as a people of God, and especially as First Baptist Church Grandview, may we, we, we be willing 
to make ourselves uncomfortable for the sake of the uncomfortable, for the sake of the lost and dying. And there are plenty right here in this town. During our time of invitation this morning, I would encourage you to dwell on this thought. What uncomfortable situation might God be calling you into that you have resisted because he wants to use it to comfort the afflicted in your world? Are you willing to be afflicted in the midst of your comfort so that God might use you to bring peace to someone else's life or salvation to the lost? What uncomfortable situation might God be calling you to today to lay aside your own comfort and to follow him for the sake of others? Think about that during this time of invitation. If you need to pray about that with me, I'll be right here. The altar will be open. You can pray there. I'm always, you can pray right where you're at. But allow yourself to have this conversation with God during these short minutes that we have together as we end. Let's stand together. I'm going to pray. Bill and Lynn are going to lead us in a song of invitation and you move in whatever way God is calling. Father, again, we thank you for today. We thank you for your spirit and we thank you for your word. God, I pray that you would lead each and every single person here this morning to a situation in which they might be uncomfortable for the sake of the gospel. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.